Now let's talk to Neil Jones and Tim Hurdle, our political commentators. Kia ora, korua. Kia ora. Tim, can you hear us? You can hear us, that's grand. Now, uh, Neil Jones, uh, Chief of Staff to Labour Leader Jacinda Ardern, and before that to Andrew Little, he's Director of Public Affairs Firm Capital, and Tim Hurdle, former National Senior Advisor, was the National Party Campaign Director in 2020 and Director of several companies, including Museum Street Strategies, which is a public affairs firm. Um, Neil, maybe I'll start with you. Uh, here we are talking about politics, and we were just saying how um, there, is, there is no politics at the moment. It's quite nice, isn't it? Oh, so quiet. Yeah. No, nothing to read in the papers. Anyway, thanks nothing for coming in. No. Um, no, we are going to talk politics nonetheless, though. Um, it's that strange holding pattern where we know sort of what's going to happen, but it's not quite happened yet. Yeah, and I mean, we're all waiting on the specials. We, mm. Currently, we have uh, National Enact with 61 out of 121. Uh, Port Waikato will likely get into 62 out of 122, yep. which is still a one-seat majority. So really waiting on those specials to see if the left picks up one or two seats like they have historically, and also if Te Party Māori can extend their overhang. They've got two seats they're within 500 votes of, so there's mm. a chance they might flip at least one of those. Mm. Interesting stuff. Tim, from your perspective, um, I mean, clearly an awful lot of things will be happening behind the scenes. We're not going to be going down the route of speculating on you know who might get what portfolio and that kind of thing, but um, clearly we'll, there will be a lot of very busy people at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot of analysis that has to go on to try and work out. Um, we always hear through the media what the bottom lines are, but that can often be um, a bit different. There'll be probably briefings going on. Um, the, the civil service will be reaching out to start um, understanding what the requirements of a new government will be. Um, staff are being lined up for new offices and people are starting to work out what they're going to do next. Mm. And um, I guess at the moment they can't really go too deep into anything like portfolio allocation until they know the makeup of who's going to get what cabinet seats and and what the majority is going to be and what the shape and, and nature of the government will be. Mm. Tim, what do you see as being um, the significant aspects that are likely to come out of the special votes and how that may influence through to the coalition forming? Well, I think, um, I mean, Neil picked up on some of those points there, but you know, we're actually looking at a lot of votes. We're talking 20% mm. of the actual vote total. So things can actually move quite significantly, and they tend to be skewed in, in different places. They they um, have moved a lot from what they used to be. They used to be uh, a, a vote of someone who couldn't make it home on election day or someone who was sick, and it was a very small total. But now they are very broad because they can be people from overseas, but they can also be people who were actually in the electorate, weren't on the electoral roll, that are allowed to vote on the day because they enrol on the day. Mm. They can be people who are outside the electorate. Um, and, you know, Neil was picking up on the Maori seats. Well, traditionally, Maori seats have always had very high totals of um, special votes. So there's quite a lot of mm. votes still to be counted in those seats. And that means that those results can be quite volatile. And what ramifications for National in particular, having won so many electorates, their number of um, list seats then is potentially quite low. I was reading somewhere that Jerry Brownlee might even be at risk. Yep, yep, that's that's how, how they're down to about five um, list seats at the moment, or six. There's about three seats there that have got a majority of less than 100. Um, and you're talking um, two opposing factors to, to consider there. One is that normally... 
the votes go with the trend, so you might see those majorities increase, but special votes tend to favour the left, so they might peg that back. Um, and then we might have a the exciting feature of a recount or a, um, a delay for some of those electorates before we finally determine who actually gets given um, the seats in Parliament and who becomes the MPs. And that does have a direct impact because you're trading off um, potential backbench um, electorate MPs versus people that were high up on the on the party list. Mm. Yeah, Neil, what do you think might be some of the ways that these things shake out? Yeah, well, I mean, there's been a bit of speculation that New Zealand First would try and do an early deal with National while there was uncertainty. I, I sort of said last week that I thought that would be foolish and they should wait till the specials came in, and that's what I thought Winston would do. It appears that is what they are doing. Uh, for, for New Zealand First, their leverage goes up significantly if they are holding the balance of power, and odds are that's what will happen. Mm. Absolutely. OK, so if everyone is waiting on the specials, not much necessarily will happen over the next week. while. Nonetheless, though, things are happening. For example, um, people are beginning to dig into what some of these election results mean. And particularly in Auckland, it's interesting, Neil. How did Labour manage to lose some of those key seats like Mount Roscoe? I mean, what did they do wrong? There'll be a lot of analysis to come, but mm. a lot of people, a lot of Aucklanders I know, have said to me that the second COVID lockdown, whatever its merits, did sort of wear on social license a bit. Um, that's more of a background factor. You talked, I talked to people who were door knocking for Labour in those seats, and they were saying that never came up on the doors once. But you know, certainly it's some background noise. But I mean, overwhelmingly, this election it was cost of living and it was crime, mm. and we saw that nationwide, but it was particularly the case in Auckland. Um, Auckland. Nationally, there was about a 12-point swing to national, and in Auckland, that was about 16 points. So clearly, Labour has an Auckland problem. And we saw that uh, both in the suburban seats, where national was able to beat Labour um, and pick up some previously safe seats, but also in South Auckland. Um, the specials are still to come, but on current numbers, one in three voters in Labour's South Auckland seats um, who voted in 2020 did not show up in 2023. Mm. Now, that'll narrow, but still, a lot of people stayed home even. It's a big chunk of the electorate. Um, Tim, what's your reading of the situation in Auckland? Um, well, I had a bit to do um, with Wayne Brown's election and um, we felt a real frustration we could see in the public um, with the lack of delivery on some of the bigger promises Labour had made in Auckland. Here we build and Auckland Light Rail had really given Labour a credibility problem with their promises. But I also think you have to factor in that Auckland's demographically a bit different. It's younger, but it's also got some very big um, house prices there and the cost of living prices has hit people very hard as mortgage rates have gone up. Uh, people have bigger mortgages in Auckland and the, a lot of the effects of the cost of living crisis have been quite amplified, particularly in some of those outer suburbs where you saw the big swings. The, the, at the end of the day, people have to pay their mortgage and pay their rent uh, before they can pretty much afford to live, and people are really feeling those impacts, and it's it really was um, a big factor to motivate people to vote against the Labour Party and, and vote for a change. I think the light rail thing's really quite illustrative of when Labour reviews the last six years, and one of the things it has to look at is that delivery challenge, and I still can't understand how six years on uh, Labour was unable to not only bu not build a single inch of light rail, but not even sign a contract or agree a route. Um, it, it does make people lose faith that you're actually able to do anything. And I think if Labour, you know, one of Labour's big challenges getting re-elected is going to be able to give the public confidence that they can actually deliver things like that. 
It does it also speak, Neil, to the changing face, particularly of Auckland as an international city, as um, an immigration city as well? Is that an area where Labour, in the past, has had some very good links, certainly around Phil Goff, but perhaps have they not been taken into account in the same sort of ways, do you think? I mean, I'm cautious of going into that line. I think it's one thing Labour should consider and look at, but they did have a very large ethnic caucus this time. Uh, 2020 brought in, I haven't done the numbers on me, but you know, they're probably about 15 people from an ethnic background. Um, I know Michael Wood carried a lot of that, a lot of that work Phil Twyford did. Oh, sorry, Phil Goff did. He, Michael Wood had excellent links. I saw firsthand uh, his links with you know, Indian, Chinese and other ethnic communities. Um, I, I, I think probably what we're looking at here is just that there was a swing away from Labour in Auckland um, for the reasons we outlined, mm. and people of every ethnicity um, face higher cost of living, probably crime, I, I suspect. Um, you know, a lot of small business people from ethnic communities would have been hit harder there. Um, one area where I do think Labour probably has to look at is the Indian vote. Um, Indian voters were typically seen as very pro-Labour. Um, I haven't, we haven't seen the numbers yet, but... Certainly what I was hearing on the ground was that there was a turn away to national this election, mm. particularly relating to crime and small business. Mm. Um, Tim, I guess, is that something that National were able to capitalise on, partly through you know the, the sort of various campaigns around, um, around law and order and about people, frankly, being sick of this stuff? Yeah, and I think the ram raid issue has really become very prominent in Auckland. That's We've seen it around the country, I don't, I don't dispute that, but, um, you know, in certain parts of Auckland, um, it's almost been a daily occurrence, and um, it's got people very frightened and people very concerned that the government isn't in charge. Um, they come to New Zealand for a peaceful existence and they want a lifestyle of, um, of, of you know, of safety, and frankly, those ram raids have really shaken the confidence of people in the local communities have seen some pretty um, violent acts that, that a ram raid is. Mm. Um, their confidence in the government has really been shaken. So if that's an event that moved votes, um, why do you think it didn't quite show up in the polls? I mean, the polls were predicting the national win. They were predicting New Zealand first back, um, those kinds of things, but perhaps not the magnitude well, I mean, when you look at the polls, One News and Talbot Mills' final polls were actually pretty accurate. Um, they both had National in the higher 40s. They had Labour down in the 20s. Mm. And they both had the Greens a bit high, but, you know, it was a pretty accurate. I do think some of the polling companies didn't do that well. News Hub Read Research, uh, Guardian Essential, both had National in mm. sort of low to mid-30s. That was well off. Um, and the Roy Morgan was just a total disaster. Um, but to be fair, that was taken over a five-week period. Um but, you know, I think I think it was a bit of a mixed bag with polling, but it wasn't totally off beam. Hmm. Tim, were you um were there any of the polls that you particularly felt did well in that run up to election day? Yeah, I think um they were they were actually relatively stable and you um you, we haven't seen the final twenty percent of the vote, so mm. we we're doing this in a preliminary sense. So we we could see the national vote come down, at which point the um the pollsters would look even more accurate. I think they were all within margins of error. There was no one um, that I thought... Uh, I think they all were fairly accurate. I think one of the things that we didn't probably see was just uh, the impact of 
some in some of those electorate seats, but we don't hold mm. really on that. We only really look at the party vote. One thing that I think was difficult as well for the pollsters was there was actually quite a shift in that final week. So if you look at the election day um, mm. result, um, advanced voting had national at forty one point two five. Election mm. day co- votes cast on election day had them at thirty six point three five. So it's a five point drop between advanced voting and election day voting. So clearly there was a, quite a shift in that last week. Um, and that's very hard for a polling company to register. Mm. Fair. Um, just before we go any further, actually, Tim, because I don't want to talk about um, some of the situation that Labour, of course, now finds itself in. But um, is there any significance that you would attach to Nicola Willis, of course, deputy leader of the National Party, not at this stage winning the seat of a Haru? Um, no, I, I thought that was a really big... Um, big haul for her to get. Wellington itself um, very much um, stayed with Labour uh, and the Greens um, came came forth. Um, but also that seat um, is um, predominantly populated by public servants and I think there'll be a certain concern amongst the public service about some of the discussion around reductions in the headcount in the public service. Um, it was also quite a big majority that Greg O'Connor had he also very much came from the moderate side of Labour um, and has been very active in his constituency. While Nicola, of course, um, had to go around the country being the finance spokesman, fronting up on debates. And while you have a high profile, it's hard to sort of... Um, you're, not, you're not putting the work in on the ground that you could if you're a, a local MP like Greg would. I, I expected Nicola Willis to pick that seat up because uh, Peter Dunn held it for years and he was kind of a sort of centre-centre-right politician um, after he left Labour many years ago. Um, <clears throat> I think Nicola Willis probably struggled because, as Tim noted, she was not able to spend time in the electorate. It was her first time standing there. She'd mm. previously stood in Wellington Central and she doesn't live in Ohari as well, which makes it harder. And I think Greg O'Connor, he was, he was in many ways a champion of the night on election night. Um, he was someone who... I think just went to, you know, he followed Peter Dunn, his example, and just went to the opening of the envelope. And you talk to anyone who lives in Ohio, um, you, you can't walk down the street without tripping over Greg O'Connor. So, you know, I, 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 think, I think Greg should be very proud holding on to that seat. We'll see, of course, what the specials deliver when they come through. Um, if we can talk a little bit about the situation for Labour, of course, Andrew Little out of the blocks um, saying that he will not take up his seat. First of many? Well... You'd expect so. And it, um, can I just say, it was a very Andrew Little move. I mean, it was mm. the same. I was with him the night that he decided to step down and um, hand over to Jacinda Ardern. And in both that decision and the decision to step aside and not take up his seat this time, it was about what is the interest of the party rather than himself. And um, he was very clear about that. I think Labour is going to need a mix of experience and new talent. Uh, I think it would be not good if all of the experienced hands uh, jumped overboard. Um, but I think, you know... Maybe Grant Robertson should stick around for a bit and Megan Wood should stick around for a bit. But I think if you're a, an ex-minister and you're sort of not thinking you'll be part of the next government, probably is a good time to start thinking about leaving and letting some of that talent that came in in 2020 back into Parliament. Mm. When you say thinking about it, what sort of timeline? Because you don't want all of those experienced hands to immediately desert. Yeah, you? look, I, I mean, they'll have to figure out the, that out themselves. Mm. I, I would I would hope someone like Graham Robertson would stick around for a bit. Um, I, I think they do need that experience, um, particularly they need politicians who have been in opposition before and know how to do it. That's the first challenge. 
Um, and when it comes to MPs who have seats who are thinking about moving on, uh, they may just need to think about how they do that, um, find the right time so you don't risk losing it, and also um, see if you can group it together if you're going to do that so that you don't end up um, annoying the public by having a string of disconnected by-elections. Mm. Um, from a perspective of leadership as well, um, and Tim, I'd be interested to know your sense of this as well um, because of course Nationals had its fair amount of bloodletting, of course Labour before it had a fair amount of bloodletting too Um, do you think that Labour will be wanting Chris Hipkins to stay for at least some time Tim? I would have thought so Um, Mm. you've always got the advantage of being um, well briefed Uh, he's been getting all those information um, reports, Uh, he knows where where things are um, he also had the advantage of perhaps um, only being there for a year, so he doesn't carry the same amount of baggage for some of the responsibility that Jacinda Ardern would have. Um, however, he you know, has the problem there. He's probably not very motivated. Uh, he didn't look very happy on election night. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether he wants to try and do something else. Um, but yeah, I, I suspect he'll, he'll hang around for a bit longer and hopefully um, have a chance to think about how he wants to present himself in the future. He's still a young guy, so you'd hope he's got more of a contribution to make. Mm. Neil, just talk us through the situation for Labour. Um, They have to take a vote on the leader. Within three months of an election, they have to Mm. take a a vote on the leader. So, you know, Hipkins doesn't have to decide immediately what he wants to do. Um, Of course, any MP could launch a challenge at any time if they so wished. Uh, I think that would be a bad move at the moment. Um... You know, look, I don't think Chris Hopkins knows, I don't know if he knows yet what he wants to do, and I don't know if the caucus knows yet what they want to do. It strikes me right now after the defeat they've suffered, would, the, the sensible thing is to sort of let the dust settle, um, get that review underway. I got an email from Jill Day, the Labour Party president today, asking for my views on what went wrong. I think they need to do all that. Um, but right now, they've actually, they don't, have, they don't have the luxury of a bitter leadership fight. There is a, National has a 100-day plan, they're planning a mini-budget uh, for Christmas, there are some significant repeals of Labour's agenda that are going to happen and Labour actually has to be focused on that and when I look at the caucus um, you know if you're looking for new blood someone like Kieran McAnulty is an obvious choice he's very wisely ruled himself out at this stage Um, and if I look around I don't see anyone right now who would be in a better position than Chris Hipkins to lead Labour through the challenge it currently faces in three six nine months twelve months maybe that will change Um, but right now I think just don't you know? Don't get into some war about the wealth tax. Don't think you're going to find your next messiah. Just hunker down, learn to be a good opposition, and get you know start to try and trip this government up, and then in due course do a leadership change. Of course, though, David Parker is one name who has popped up. Uh, obviously, a very senior um, MP within the Labour caucus, and using some language last week that would indicate that. Perhaps there was a bit of wriggle room. Yeah, I heard him say there's currently a leader, which is always a always a signal. Um, look again. I mean, David Park would be a perfectly credible person to go for the leadership, but again, I, I guess I would question the timing if that was something that was going to happen. Um, I, I think this isn't the time yet to discuss what the platform for 2026 is. This is um, that will come, and particularly given Parker's role in the wealth tax debate, I, I just think that would be a very bad debate for Labor to open up right now. Um, it, a wealth tax may well be part of Labour's platform. It might not be in the future, but I, th- I think it's sort of it's one of those things that became symbolic for a lot of people of a desire for Labour to be bolder. 
And I think if you were to fixate on the wealth tax and the party was to go down that road right now, um, they would, A, miss the point of why they lost because there's actually a huge amount um, of soul-searching they need to do. I think it would obscure some of that soul-searching that needs to happen. And I think actually it's not what the public want right now. Um, you know, this isn't the time to be arguing about a tax internally. This is the time to be focusing on the government and trimming them up. Mm. Uh, Tim, from the new government's perspective, the 100-day plans, um, certainly some uh, some crossover with National and ACT and their 100-day plans. But what are you anticipating, uh, certainly of some of the Labour initiatives being wound back, things like the 90-day um 90 days and also fair pay agreements yeah well they'll have to get some legislation up quickly um legislation can't be drafted in five minutes so presumably there's been work underway um to to start getting that kind of um work in place the advantage of a repeal is you can pretty much try and recreate the previous settings rather than putting a replacement legislation which requires um, a lot more work Mm. um but um I'd imagine that works um, probably underway um, as as we speak. They, they do have quite an ambitious 100-day plan, though, because you've got the RMA reforms, you've got three waters, you've got fair pay agreements, you've got the clinker discount, you've got 90 days, you've got a whole lot of gang stuff. I, I, I do think there's a risk for National that they... And they've got the mini-budget as well. I do think there's a risk for National that if they are overly ambitious and they don't achieve it, they get a, deliver, they get a delivery story or a failure to deliver story very early on. Um, they might, if they don't think they're going to be able to get through it all, they might be smart to come out of coalition negotiations with a new 100-day plan that's a bit more achievable. Do you think that's likely, Tim? Well, again, we await these specials to know what the shape of the government is, but they really have made um, uh, a pretty clear plan, so they will be of the view that the public service should be able to implement it, I would have thought. Mm. Um, this is the, the question... Um, that National has to really show that it is better at delivery than than Labour has been for the last six years mm. um, to restore faith um, in government, I guess. As for the mini-budget, um, what do you anticipate with that? When do you anticipate it happening? Um, well, I would, ha- would imagine the work on doing something like that is quite complicated. Um, it wouldn't come out to, I suspect, about mid-December. Um, the interesting question will be whether there's a a full economic and fiscal update. Um, Winston has said he wants to open the books. Um, the, the pre-election economic and fiscal update was based on um, Grant Robertson's assumptions. Mm. Um, National might want to have a look at what those underlying assumptions are before they determine how much money they are, and that will also impact on promises and the ability to deliver. And they'll also have the challenge of if they're looking at tax cuts, for example, um, they're not going to be able to bluster their way through. They're going to have Treasury saying, can you actually achieve these things? And they'll probably say you can't. Thank you very much, both of you. Tim Hardle and Neil Jones there, our political panel for 9 to noon for the day.